Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to The Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. And it's a great pleasure to have on the program today David Powlison. David is a well-known Christian author, and in his spare time, when he's not writing books, he's executive director of CCEF, that's a Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, based in Glenside in Pennsylvania, and also the senior editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And we've asked David onto the program today to talk about biblical counseling and to talk about how that connects to the life and ministry of the local church. So it's great to have you with us, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Perhaps we could start by giving us giving us a definition of, of what exactly is biblical counseling. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. You know, I'll do a little bit in backwards. Uh, the premise is that the things that are going on in our hearts, in our lives, in our worlds, are things that Scripture is very concerned about. Christ addresses, the Bible addresses, ministry addresses the problems that get viewed in our culture as, quote, psychological or behavioral or adjustment or, and so forth. And biblical counseling is simply the attempt to bring into the personal one-on-one ministry uh, that more consultative aspect of ministry, friendship aspect of ministry, the truths that we sing, the truths that we preach, and to connect the dots between life lived and the Savior of the world. That would be a nutshell. What's y'all's understanding, therefore, of of the sufficiency of Scripture in uh, in in biblical counseling? Because I know that you all do talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and talk about uh, the role, obviously, biblical counseling, but how would you describe the sufficiency of Scripture, what it's not sure. in regards to counseling yeah, that's and a great, what it is? That is a great question, because I do think the term sufficiency is easy to misunderstand. It becomes a buzzword for insiders, and it becomes a point of perplexity or disagreement for outsiders, um, needlessly, I think, because I would say that Scripture is sufficient not does not mean it's exhaustive, does not mean it contains all facts, that it explains all syndromes, that it portrays every human problem, uh, or even every piece of wisdom that is possible to communicate to another person. But Scripture is comprehensively and penetratingly relevant to what concerns people, the things people live for, the things people struggle with, the things people face, the motives, fears, desires, confusions, unbelief, lies that bedevil us. And, uh, so it's, it's, Scripture's sufficient for counseling the same way it's sufficient for preaching or evangelism or church government or theological work. Uh, scripture is not none of those things. It's not a handbook on any of those things. But it is this comprehensive framing source book that either in principle in doctrine or in illustration informs every one of those things to such a degree that you can you can actually point to things that say that sermon was an unbiblical sermon or that sermon was a biblical sermon and you can say the same thing about counseling 
So what role do you see um, biblical counseling playing in the local church? Like what kind of relationship um, would that serve in? And is this something that lay people could be equipped in doing? Or is there a level of even friendship counseling? Uh, You mentioned the word friendship. You know, uh, we call it within CCEF, which has the word counseling in our name, and in our mission statement, restoring Christ to counseling, restoring counseling to the church, we use the word counseling three times. But we call it the C word because the connotative freight of that word in our culture is very professionalized, very secularized, very odd. People think of themselves, oh, I'm not a counselor. I could never be a counselor. I anchor it in what the Bible talks about the tongue and the fact that every word out of our mouth has weight. It is always communicating worldview. It's always communicating values, point of view, desires, fears, intentions. Hence, every careless word is judged. And so the intent of biblical counseling historically, uh, I mean, it's a word that does capture something in our current culture in which the word counseling has a whole other set of meanings. But what I would mean by it, what we would mean by it is aligned with the cure of souls. Uh, You could call it personalized discipleship. You could call it friendship that has a point to it. Uh, You could uh, call it, you know, you could call it spiritual direction. You could call it problem-centered discipleship. There's, what it's basically saying is that we're so much discipleship teaches people doctrine, teaches people the the disciplines of the Christian life, the, the means of grace, perhaps explores their gift package, but it very rarely actually gets at how do you treat people and what makes you anxious and why do you react in that situation? Um, all those things that are more get tagged off as counseling problems or personal problems or interpersonal problems. So I, I think, you know, all those other, you know, doctrine and disciplines of the Christian life and, and knowing what your gifts are are all important, but it's the, yeah, not to minimize the importance of connecting the dots to where we really live. If you were to to give a, a preacher advice, what what should a preacher know about counselling, and how should that knowledge shape the way he preaches? If that's not too broad a question, no, it's a great question. My answer it's so broad. My answer will be brief, but no, maybe the simplest way to be to put it this way: that preaching is it's one way communication unless you create context later for the interaction. Preaching is under the control, hopefully, and the planning of the one doing preaching. And preaching tends to move in the direction from text toward life, if it has an applicational interest, which it always ought to have. Counseling is unscripted. You don't control what happens. It's conversational. It typically moves from life, and if you're doing it faithfully to our Lord, from life toward Scripture. So, it's a, it's a conversational skill that I think ought to complement a proclamational skill. And that interplay is rarely written about uh, in books on hermeneutics, books on ministry of the word, uh, books on preaching, or books on counseling for that matter. Um, but that interplay, I am persuaded, I'll put it both directions, proclamation, having some part of your life where where you do proclamation, you do teaching, has a huge effect on what you bring into the conversation and vice versa. So a pastor who does no counseling 
is likely going to generate implications out of the text that are, they may be related to his perception of current cultural trends, uh, historical moment. When they get personal, they may tend to be either pietistic or moralistic. But I think a preacher who does some counseling, who just basically just rubs shoulders with people, is going to be a more effective preacher. It, uh, one of the ways I'll put it in talking to preachers is, you will never lack for application. People will know you're talking about them, though not in person, uh, and they will they will get it. I mean, it, it's Jesus is always relevant. So if you people say uh, it's that double exegesis, you know, you exegete text, you exegete the person or the audience, and as the case may be. So I think uh, effective ministry always is doing a double exegesis in that way. The, the stated mission of, of CCF is to is to bring you know counseling as, as much as possible at least in, in into the body of Christ into the church and in that case it's been it's such a worthy uh, goal. What would you recommend to a pastor who is thinking, gosh, you know, every time someone has a problem, we outsource it. What would you tell them are some good steps to take, not to handle every single problem that you know, because some of those issues might need to be outsourced, and that's a later question. But, but what are some first things a church can and should do to to better steward the opportunity of giving biblical counsel to people who who don't yet necessarily need to be on medication, but they need some good, thoughtful biblical counsel? What are some first things that a pastor or a church can do to begin to build that? I'll, I'll mention two of of many. One would be to you no doubt have some wise people in your church already. And they, they may not ever think of themselves using the C word, but they're wise people. They get it with what it's like to experience some devastating loss. And they have lived the dynamic of the beginning of Second Corinthians where the comfort we receive in all our afflictions, we are able to comfort those in any affliction. So, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they're going to be wise people. And I think some of it is simply having a vision. Maybe you don't even use the word counseling. We actually published an editorial in the Journal of Biblical Counseling recently from a pastor, why we call it caring, not counseling. As basically on, you know, they tried to introduce biblical counseling in their church and it fizzled because yeah. I'm not a counselor. I, yeah. I don't want to, you know, these people are, Sounds like a big responsibility. It's big, and the people are probably very strange. And <laughs> But if what they really are is your neighbors, and so let's talk about how you really care for somebody. And you're going to care for somebody. Uh, I, I like to think about it. Every single Christian is called to care in three ways. This is like, these aren't tied to gifts per se. They're not tied to specialized programmatic ministries. We are all called to pray for people. And... We are all called to help practically when, you know, somebody has a practical need for material help. And we're all called to speak wisely in ways that encourage people. You know, the, the, the pastor can never fulfill the Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily. So that's a, it says all of us have to encourage one another daily. So looking for wise people, casting a vision for what we mean and don't mean. And I'll throw, throw in a third one. I, I actually think one of the simplest, most direct ways to help 
counseling start to embed logically and organically in a congregation is to, is to help people really think about how they make prayer requests and how they pray. Because typical prayer requests are external. It's really God changed my world, you know, mm. and it could, it's good things, you know, provide food and health and healing and travel mercies and bless this ministry outreach we're having and pray for my unsaved relatives. But all those prayer requests, they're operating with the person behind the video camera invisible. Sort of everything in my world's fair game for God, but I'm not. Um, you look at the prayers in the, in the scripture, and scripture does have prayers for health and travel mercies and so forth, unsaved people, but it really digs in on the quality of a person's faith and the quality of their love. Uh, Paul's prayers in the beginning of epistles are typically for a deepening knowledge of God and a deepening love for people. Uh, in Ephesians, it's just it's just for faith to deepen. So he, um, so people miss the obvious. So you, you think of a, you know, every ch- church prays for people with medical things going on. The difference between just saying, you know, well, we pray for that for Sally's cancer, and we pray for the doctors to be skilled, and we pray for her to find healing. How do we also pray? And you can do this even publicly without embarrassing or making it weird for anybody. We pray that as she goes into this, that she would not be afraid, that she would trust her Christ, that God would give her, and then this one you might more say in a conversation with her, more private prayer, that God would give her the ability to not be self-preoccupied, but actually to be cognizant of her caregivers, to learn their names, to care about them, to be grateful to them. I mean, there's this opportunity where this person is not just a body that you hope gets healing. This is a living soul that may or may not get healing, but has this opportunity for faith and love to be expressed. So I do think that those are three really elemental things in a way that cast a vision that makes mutual biblical counseling ministry sensible. Leveraging that wisdom that the Lord has already blessed your church with and is just waiting to be tapped into. Sure. Yeah. Is there a time, and if so, when does a church need to hand someone over to a professional, quote-unquote? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And my answer won't do it adequately, but there are things where there is a genuine medical component. Take some of the obvious examples, um, dementias, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, hypothyroid conditions, side effects of medicine that can cause depression, depressed mood. So Christian faith has never been hostile to just medical care. I liken it to when would we hand somebody over, they could really use some education or they could really use some, you know, they're eligible for for welfare or health benefits or, you know, why aren't you cashing in on your social security? You know, there are things out there that are part of God's common grace that are to be used. The difficulty comes in that when common grace wants to be the whole solution. And one of the most telling interviews I ever heard was on uh, NPR. It was with the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health. So in that sense, it's America's top psychiatrist. He's, he's teaches now at Harvard, but was NIMH head for a number of years in the late 90s, early 2000s. They were doing an interview on the state of psychiatry in America today, which 15 years later, the state is the same. He was he, a very humble man, humble humanist, good humanist. He said, 
You know, we psychiatrists have been given an impossible job because people expect us to solve all the woes of human beings, and we can't. Our medications can often alleviate symptoms, but we can't give people what they really need. People need meaning, and they need relationship. And I thought, man, the church could, we can all sign on that one. I mean, we can offer meaning and relationship. And the does that mean that we despise symptom alleviation where it might help a bit? Well, no. But if symptom alleviation is being oversold as all we need, and if the secular world is not touching with a 10-foot pole the issues of meaning and relationship or is offering false versions of those, then we've got a problem with the overselling and, and the secularity of what's available. I was going to say, David, much of what you've said this perhaps is a broader question than counseling, but it seems that much of what you're pointing to indicates what I think is a kind of crisis in friendship in modern society, that people don't have friends anymore. If you read some of the letters that the Victorians would write to each other, you had very deep and profound friendships. Very candid. Yeah. Um, between between men and men, for example. Nowadays, you know, we, we look back and they almost seem sexual because that's the grid we read things through now. Right. In actual fact, at the time, they were just very profound friendships. Is there a way in which the church can... I'm speaking to you almost just as a Christian now rather than as a counsellor. Is there a way that the church can help people regain that sense of deep personal friendship, which sounds to me as if it would minimally set a good context for the kind yeah, of counseling you're talking well, about. It may it, actually it, deal with many of the problems. Well, it naturally would deal. be counsel because there's a mutual bearing of burdens. There's a, a genuine care for each other. There's praying. Um, one of my favorite quotations, 17th century quotations, is from uh, Francis Bacon. And he said that those who lack friends to unburden themselves to become cannibals of their own hearts. Mm. You know, and then he goes on to say that the unburdening of our heart to our friend it redoubles joys and it cuts sorrows in half and it's just such a sane mm. comment mm. you know and i think reflected uh a, a period you know, that was circa 1620 i think it reflected a puritan mm. or even probably a more general christendom ethos mm. about friendship that people need friends so how do we go about culture i mean what can we positively do to try to encourage that given the way the world is so destructive of yeah. that kind of friendship now are there any practical I, I, ways yeah i mean I, i'm not going to say anything any of us couldn't come up with but we make friends ourselves it, you invest in time have relationships that aren't simply instrumental to some purpose mm. I, you can't have many uh, you know i, I, I probably have right there yeah i part. probably have there are two men and there's my wife mm. in my life that I feel I can talk about whatever's going on. I know they love me. I know they'll care for me. And to have a context where candor is expected, it's part of honoring each other. It's part of caring for each other. So, yeah, there's, so it's not going to be magic, and it can't be a let's have a friendship program. Right. You know? <laughs> so I do think that it can be tricky for a pastor because uh, oftentimes a pastor's the best friend in that sense is going to be somebody outside the church. I don't think it's impossible for it to be inside the church. I think it, it can be difficult at times because of you know, people feeling jealous or favoritism or something. But you can certainly talk about it and model it and encourage it and, in ways that in the public teaching 
could invite people to take the kind of time it takes to actually have real friendship. We were talking just this morning about the LGBTQ community and how for all the obvious problems we have with them, they seem to do friendship and community very well. And it behooves Christians, therefore, to do it better, if I could put it that way. Not sure how to do that. You can learn from them in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and you had mentioned in that context, you know, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. And, yeah. and we recently had her at our church, and she, again, just talked about the how well her community prior to her conversion, mm. how well they did hospitality and built friendships yeah. from that. And her expectation was that in the body of Christ, it would be at least that good, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, sort and then of you're disappointed. Yeah. 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 I think social media has changed the way we think about a lot of that, not only like the number of friends that we can have, yeah. but also the way we project ourselves right. and Rather what we let other people see yeah. about ourselves. Right. And so yeah. um, there's this arm's length. Mm-hmm. And um, and, then and you, a veneer. There's a persona. A veneer. And then you have all spin, the um, right. the shows that tell us you know how to perfectly decorate and and how to make all these great Pinterest worthy meals. And so, um, if our house isn't in perfect condition, you know we just have to make do with what we have in the cupboards to spontaneously invite someone over. You know, are we willing to just let people in right. to, the, yeah. to the raw mm. self? Yeah. Some some of the mm. people that we know that do hospitality so well. Um, are, are at a place in their life where they're able to say, the house is a little bit messy and we're just ordering pizzas mm-hmm. and we want you to sure. come over. Right. And help with the dishes. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh-huh. and it's amazing. Not only does that take the pressure off of them, but it kind of takes the pressure off of the guests as well. It really yeah. does. Because they're more relaxed, you're it more really, relaxed. It really, it's disarming. Yeah. You need but, to talk to my wife. Because <laughs> when we when we open the house, the sort of 20, 30-somethings in the church, she starts to prepare on the Wednesday. Yeah. It's an absolute <laughs> nightmare for me. I can't believe that place. <laughs> Katrina, if you're listening to this, listen uh, to Todd. He's a wise man. <laughs> I find that I function in both sides. You know, yeah. when I yeah. have planned something ahead of time, you know, I'll probably stress my family mm-hmm. out. But... um I'm getting better because mm-hmm. I have friends who have modeled it well. Model, uh-huh. And the my pastor models that well. Mm-hmm. The first time he invited our family to lunch, like we had just started visiting the church, <laughs> he invites us over for lunch. And I, I said, oh, I'll bring the cookies. And he's like, oh, thank you. And we come over there. I had no idea his wife was out of town. I mean, he had his mother staying with him who was older. And he's got five little kids, you know, and he's just like, here, help me in the kitchen. Right, right. <laughs> you know, as soon yeah. as I got in there, and yeah. Matt, come help me with grilling. Yeah. And we just jumped right in, and it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're going to do friendships, we're going to have to drop a lot of pretense and start doing yeah. that. You're going to have to, when somebody drives six hours to be at your installation, you I have knew. to actually let it's them the into your house, man. I knew that was going to come up. David, I'm so sorry you have to witness this. I'm so sorry you have to witness this, David. No, am I witnessing Carl's heartache or <laughs> your coldness of heart or what, what's the would The real reason we have you on here is we need you to help us work through some stuff. No, actually, we do want to, we do want to talk a little bit about your book though. I know Amy is holding a copy of the new book. Yes. Good and angry, redeeming anger, irritation, complaining, and bitterness. And I'm good and Todd's angry. That's what I intended. Take whichever half of the title <laughs> the shoe fits. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to you know, have you talk about a little bit with this book, um, and, and I guess I'm just full of pride because I was just talking to Tim Whitmer about how I didn't think I was a worrier when I started reading his book. Mm-hmm. And when I opened this up, I, I'm like, oh, well, I don't really struggle terribly with anger. But mm-hmm. um, 
you teach a much broader view <laughs> of what qualifies as anger than I think what we typically think. And even some of these words, you know, I will think, you know, when I'm being irritable, okay, that's angry. And, but ooh, complaining, complaining, that's something I do, <laughs> right. you know. I'm like, oh, that, I don't want that to be ugly anger, you know. <laughs> right. What? So, you know, what behaviors besides rage? In the, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, mm-hmm. they got zapped. Yeah. It was a, it was right. a capital yeah. crime right. to yeah. grumble. <sighs> Because it says, I'm God and the world's not, the real God's not cooperating and I grumble. Right. So what what other behaviors besides rage, you know, that we think of and this red cover kind of alludes to um, are actually rooted in anger? Yeah, what have we disguised as something other than anger, but it actually is anger? (laughs) You know, I I mean, these are illustrations that are there, but um, indifference and cynicism, I I think of that as, I'm not going to care enough to be angry. But I'm just going to be completely indifferent to you. So it's not anger, like with, like hormones and adrenaline flowing through your veins. It's, but it's the same stance of a fundamental despising of another person or a situation, coldness, withdrawal, passive aggressive kinds of things, um, and then good anger. Uh, anger. I mean, the title intends to be what it says that, uh, like any. You know, God looked at what he made when he made us, and he said, very good, and that includes the entirety of our emotional capacity. So fear and anxiety, which can go way off the rails, are given as a response to threat. Um, anger is given as a response to something is wrong. Despair, discouragement is given to, as a true, honest response to a loss. And you could go down through the list. It uh jealousy god is jealous why he's jealous in a good in a loving sense because he it's a it's a sense of protection of threat to something that one is loves and um you know a parent who had no jealousy for the welfare of their kids would be a defective parent you know it uh so my intent is actually to not only broaden the definition of where we get stuck and also deepen our our personal self-knowledge about dynamics that drive through it but but also to, to really redeem uh anger um one of the one of the most powerful essays in, in our reformed tradition is that uh, warfield essay on the emotional life of our lord and yes. you know he he basically says that that the jesus anger and love actually work together because how could a man who loved not be angry when other people are being mistreated and led astray and uh, Calvin has got some powerful I mean, Calvin had certain stoic tendencies I think in his pastoral care but he he's got some powerful critiques of stoicism that is probably the dominant way our culture tries to treat or therapize anger is you know cognitive behavioral therapy which essentially uh, teaches you to distance yourself from getting upset about things and there's really a place. There's a place to get upset, and then sin is such a destructive power. We we get upset in the wrong times, and then we get upset about the right things in the wrong way. And you know, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God because anger just so characteristically goes off the rails. But it's a, an emotion that is to be redeemed. One thing that I've really appreciated that you say in this book is um, when you're getting into these. To constructive conflict and you talk about the mercies of of charity and patience and forgiveness and then you say they don't make you nice 
They make you the right kind of tough, able to do that fourth mercy of constructive conflict as needed. And I was just so appreciative of that um, because I've seen this, you know, being wanting people trying to fit you into this, be nice, you know, this is the type of person you're supposed to be, where it's very manipulative. Um, And you could be, I know a lot of really nice people who are angry people, very angry people. So that niceness isn't our aim. Um, Could you talk about, unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me, and it's a chapter, it's actually the one that from an intellectual and theological standpoint is the heart uh, of the goal is I call it the constructive displeasure of mercy because in our natural wiring, there are things that displease us and anger's obviously in the displeasure end. We're not happy about what's happening. There's indifference where you rate zero on the Richter scale and then there's pleasure, you know, and uh, we're wired, whether it's sort of love and hate or joy and sorrow or trust and fear, there's this bipolarity in human emotion and then there's neutral in the middle. But we live in a world that has major things wrong, and which means we'll be displeased. But how do you do displeasure in a way that's actually redemptive? And hence the constructive displeasure of mercy. And it had struck me that forgiveness and charity, forbearance, these things all assume that there's something wrong. You know, yeah. that there's something that yeah, patience is not just like being easygoing and putting up with stuff. Right. Patience, there's a purposeful it's the, but it's a willingness to not have to solve it right now. I've actually, at times, I've, I've thought that God's patience is the most underpreached attribute of his love, you know. And it's right there in Mount Sinai, and it's the first on the list in 1 Corinthians 13. He is patient, but it doesn't mean he's passive or just kind of tolerating what's going on. He's, he's always purposeful, but he's willing to take the time it takes. Yeah. You also said that truth is always a troublemaker. That's, you know, something you have to do very carefully. You know, we talk about speaking the truth in love, but But if you want to be nice and if you treasure niceness, you really can't speak truth. It's a troublemaker. I Uh I really appreciate it. You know, I bet Carl Truman agrees with that. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is a troublemaker. uh, You think that's like... Carl Sagan to that. Yeah, maybe maybe you got that from him. <laughs> but that you know that that that's a it's a great point because if 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 your goal is to just be a peacekeeper rather than a peacemaker, just just peace maintainer, mm-hmm. then you'll probably avoid saying things that are true periodically or often. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, just to to close, why don't we re- reiterate and why don't you answer um, what is good anger? You know, the title of this book is Good and Angry. What's good anger? Yes, good anger is being troubled by the things you ought to be troubled about and expressing it in a way that aligns with the purposes of the living God. So, rightly aroused and rightly expressed for right motives unto a right end. Uh, you know, all the things that are basic to to Christian ethics um, in terms of behavior and motive and goal. Um anger can be ethical in that sense all right well thank you for being with us today it's a pleasure pleasure to talk with you and i'm excited to say that we do have some copies of david palson's book good and angry to give away if you um stop over at our website mortificationofspin.org 
you can enter to win one of those. And, and we recommend the book to you. And also, just to remember that we are a donor-supported podcast, so that if you would also like to do that while you're over at the website, we would appreciate that very much. We also appreciate your prayers, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Because psalms do that. Psalms give us language for prayer. They give us language for praise, for dismay. I think one of the great things about the psalms is the poetry. Mm -hmm. Poetry is a very powerful form of language. In some ways, it's hard to articulate, but poetry does things that mere prose doesn't. I just think that's so powerful how Jesus was, you know, meditating and and quoting from God's word in that psalm. They grab the imagination. They Mm -hmm. grab your moral imagination, your theological imagination. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. If you ever find it too easy to get to sleep at night, read this book, The Medical History of the Reformation. Yeah. It will keep, it will cure you really? of falling asleep. Yeah. You won't sleep for weeks. That bad, huh? It's that bad. It's written by an evangelical Scottish surgeon. It's, it's of course. terrifying. Well, yeah, I mean, I've... Oh. I've, I've, I've it's mo- a modern book? Yeah, it's a... It's a, uh, it's this a guy did a... And the point he's making is these men were in physical discomfort yeah. all the time. And, you know, to have a... Samuel Pepys kept his gallstones on his mantel shelf because the operation was so horrific. Almost certainly left him uh, unable to have children. He never had children. And, you know, you were lucky to survive. Yeah. I mean, just imagine, no anesthetics. You think about Yeah, no anesthetics. Uh, uh, no uh, antibiotics. Antibiotics. Oh. The, 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 the. It's amazing that anybody was ever in a good mood. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. I, I, yeah. The, the proximity and that you were living with people and then the sanitation systems and... I just. But you lived in West Virginia for a while. It's <laughs> the so same so thing. I, you know, I, mean, I can relate. You know, add, you knew that was coming. Add to that the cannibalistic, <laughs> the cannibalistic yeah. hillbillies yeah. that lived around yeah. there. Well, banjo it was hard to survive. Banjo playing in the woods. <laughs> the banjos I don't, I don't know throw. how Amy lived this long. <laughs> <laughs> the roving band. She's only 20. I mean, you see how it's. Uh, yeah, it does have an impact. Getting too close now.